Coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. The two most important concepts that we believe that a leader needs, first of all, trust. Uh, everything is, uh, trust needs to underlie every relationship that you have as a leader. If you don't have trust, you're not going to have any type of meaningful, open conversations with the people that you are leading. So trust is the basis. And then the second thing is presence. Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed. Picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, episode 127. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Bjorn Bilhart. Bjorn is CEO and founder of, of Ability, a global leadership development company. Prior to launching Ability, Bjorn co-founded Inspire Learning in 2001, an early pioneer of e-learning programs and business simulations. Bjorn holds a BA from the University of Texas and an MBA from Harvard Business School. A native of Hamburg, Germany, he came to the U.S. as an exchange student in high school and now lives in Austin, Texas, with his wife and three young boys. Bjorn, so glad to have you on the show today. Thank you so much, Naftali. There's a lot to unpack already over there. I'd love to jump into it. Um, it's interesting because I used to teach high school many years ago, and uh, we too had, I wouldn't say it was, a, it was a formal exchange program, but I remember distinctly having a student from Germany in my class. His name was Jacob. I don't remember his last name. I'm not sure what happened to him, uh, but I know he was super bright, made a lot of contributions to the class. And it's funny because you're talking about e-learning back in 2001. And so I was very active in the web 1.0 days and trying to integrate uh, technology and the internet and whatnot in my teaching. And I was teaching history, specifically Jewish history. And I had my students do these web quests, which were like online, let's call it lesson plans, multi-day lesson yeah. plans with roles and responsibilities and links to follow and all sorts of things like that. And I remember of all the students and all their projects, my recollection is that his was either the best or of the best. So <laughs> uh, we're already we're already yes. off a good start here vicariously through Jacob. Um, but uh, let, let's let's talk a little bit more about you and and what it is that you do and uh, maybe a little bit about your journey. Um, to America and more specifically your professional journey. Yeah, yeah, I'll start with my journey to America because there is always that German exchange student, as I've learned. <laughs> and I was that guy. So you were that guy. I was that guy. I was I was uh, a very confused uh, German that came to Pflugerville, Texas uh, mm. in 1990. And it was quite an eye-opening experience. It was a very different culture. Uh, and I had a, an absolute fantastic time. I realized there was a place beyond Hamburg, Germany. And uh, I remember I called up my mother uh, three weeks into the exchange program. And I said, Mom, I think I'm going to stay here mm. for, for the rest of my life. And she laughed at me. And, um, you know, and here you are. And here I am. Yeah, it, it took her until the birth of my third son, I think. Uh, that's when she... I remember her holding my third son and, and she looked at me, she's like, I, it, it seems like you're probably not coming back to Germany. <laughs> I realized <laughs> that up until that point, she still was thinking I may actually move back, but they may actually yeah. move back. That is funny. 
That is funny. But yeah, so my, my life journey started in Pflugerville, Texas, I guess. Um, I just absolutely fell in love with um, what I saw, um, that there's the friendliness of the people and also the opportunity um, that uh, I think I saw even back then as a 15-year-old. Uh, and so I went to the University of Texas, studied both uh, philosophy, I had a broad-based philosophy major um, as well as business, and then uh did a few odds and ends consulting jobs uh, in between undergrad and business school, got lucky enough to be accepted to Harvard Business School in in 2000 Mm. and graduated there in 2001. And and then joined the early world of e-learning. And uh, I guess it's similar to uh, what you did with your students, you know, kind of putting together online, um, putting together online courses for large mm-hmm. corporations mm-hmm. and um and so we went from there started my first company inspire learning as a services business grew that uh, for about 15 years so ended up about being 50 people and then realized in 2015 that my passion actually isn't it, it's my passions are learning uh technology some education, some uh, entertainment actually as well, in addition to education. And I realized that e-learning, just the kind of these click courses that we were developing weren't really going to uh, fire me up as a leader. And so I sold, uh, I, I, I transitioned out of Inspire and eventually uh, it was sold um, and started my second company, Ability, in 2015. Wow, interesting. Yeah, just as a brief anecdote before we continue, I have a son daughter-in-law and granddaughter living in London. And, um, you know, the whole idea of, of will he settle there permanently? Will he not? You know, it's sort of like this lingering question. You know, we're, we're happy for them where they are. We're not put, putting any pressure. But I definitely can relate to the question of having kids abroad and wondering what their ultimate future will be. Um, yeah, so there's a lot there. And, and I'm, and I'm kind of curious. Um, we talked about passion. Um, so I, I would like to unpack that just a little bit because I hear different things from different people when it comes to passion. You know, everybody has heard of the Steve Jobs uh, commencement speech and and whatnot of following your passion and many others that talk about it as well. And then you'll hear people like Mike Rowe say that your passion follows your efforts, meaning to say mm-hmm. you get passionate after you you do things and you invest yourself and you become good at it. And that's where the passion really develops. Um, it's interesting because just to trans to switch languages for a moment, I'm not going to go German because that's not an area I'd be very f- proficient at. But Hebrew, uh, the the Hebrew word for love is ahava, and the word hav means to give, and so it's understood that love emerges from things that we give to. So typically, we think we love things because they are. So I I love something that I enjoy eating, which is somewhat of a paradoxical statement. Believe that for now. Or, or something else, but real love, as we know, is something we've invested in. So I'm curious to know what your take is and uh, advice you would give as far as drawing to the importance of drawing together passion with your work and, and the process by which you would advise people to get there. Yeah, it's always the hardest question to answer, right? Do you follow your passion like Steve Jobs wants you to do, or, or do you actually figure out what you're good at? And I have to say in my, my life journey, I, I, I know this sounds like a cop-out, but I think it's actually in between. 
And I'll give you the example. Like I, when I was in high school, I desperately wanted to be a movie director. That was all, all I thought about. I watched thousands of movies. I actually, when I started at the University of Texas, I started in the department of theater and dance um, because that, that was the fine arts. That's what I wanted to do. And I realized actually it was, it was the, I, I got really good grades all around, but I didn't get a good grade in, in um, drama. And I realized actually I wasn't that, that great at it. And also being a movie director is not necessarily a job that a lot of people can be very successful at. So you have to be really, really good to, yeah. to succeed. And so it was a passion of mine that I thought I would never give up, um, but I did. Um, so that's the one side of the story is, and I was, I'm very happy now with the life that I chose, even though I didn't follow that passion. But I think there's a, so on that side, I, I agree with this, like, you know, you don't just blindly follow your passions. Like you actually got to look in the mirror and look at what, what you're good at. Cause if you have a passion that you're not good at, you're, you, I'm, I'm better off being a movie, uh, uh, being a movie connoisseur rather than a movie creator, right? Um, I can still enjoy the art. I don't have to create it. Um, and I'm fine with that now as, as I approach uh, 50 years of age. Um, but I will say there's a corollary to that. And that is, if you don't, if you're not actually passionate at all about what you're doing, you will lead a miserable life. And I, re I do remember I, um, after a few iterations of what I was thinking of doing or what I was thinking of, I wanted to do after, um, uh, after business school. I remember my first idea, this was in the early days of the internet was, you know, one, one of the things that the internet is going to disrupt are supermarkets. And so I'm like, I'm going to create this online supermarket. That was my entrepreneurial idea. And I do remember I was standing in this grocery store doing market research. And I was standing in the fish aisle talking to one of the, uh, you know, store managers and I hate fish and I hated the smell of fish. And I realized I actually, unlike you, I was not a foodie. I don't like food. And I just wasn't passionate at all about the idea of food and me spending my life in this business of food. And so I realized that's when I had to abandon the idea because I could never get passionate enough about it to go through years and years of struggle trying to figure out how to keep you know fish refrigerated in transit when you run an online supermarket and so where I found my passion and you know it's, it's interesting to talk about leadership development here in a second um where I found my passion was it, there's actually it was right in the middle. It's like, I'm not a movie director, but there's a lot of entertainment in education. And you're an educator. I, I firmly believe education is partly performance art. And so that's where I've gotten, that's where I get my kind of satisfaction from following that passion of being a movie director. I get it in designing really incredible learning experiences that wow people and that inspire people just like a movie would. So I think it's in the middle and I know that's a cop-out answer, but it, it you cannot um, be happy. I think if there's no passion about what you do in your work, I just, I, I mean, and many people live that way and some people have to live that way, but if you have the choice, find something that you're passionate about, but it doesn't need to be 
that one passion because I, I do also believe that passions can change. Yeah. Okay. I agree with you there. And I think that probably if you have zero passion for it, you're not going to be happy no matter how much money you're making um, or nor will you necessarily invest the time and the energy to make it super successful in the first place. I hear that. On the other hand, I do agree that you've got to, you know, work towards something, find, find, find the zone, find the lane you know, that, or a lane where you feel you could be happy and then go all in and really work to be excellent at it. Um, I do like this idea, by the way, of of education as performance art. Um, it isn't something that I've commonly talked about, but I would say it's something that I frequently um, tapped into. Not that I consider myself a performer per se, though I used to be in skits and other impromptu types of things and school and whatnot. Um, but I do think that if you're going to educate people, you have to get their attention. You have mm -hmm. to be able to draw them in. You have to be able to create an interest in it, especially today with so much competition, with technology in particular, with limited attention spans and and people feeling busy, even if they're not really busy or at least being useful, you know, overly productive with their busyness. But the point is, you have to work harder, I think, than ever uh, to gain to gain passion. And it's one of the presentations I'm going to be doing in February for a, a large group of educators actually is about relationships with students and how to develop them. And there was a study, I believe it was University of Oklahoma. Um, I don't remember all the elements. I, I know you, you certainly have to be competent. You have to know your content um, and you have to be able to connect with the kids, uh, anyone in your, in your class, but you also have to have an element of dynamism right? You have to be dynamic. Oh, yeah. You can't be, uh, there There are teachers and I, I coach, so I, I go into classrooms still and I'll see teachers and I'll say, that teacher would be mighty fine in a college lecture hall. You know, they, they'd be okay because the expectation, even there, I think you have to increase your engagement levels compared to let's say years past, but there maybe you don't have to worry so much about classroom management, things like that. But the teachers who I find who generally speaking have great classroom management, whose students are learning, who love what they're what they're learning about, even if it's not necessarily their greatest, most interesting topic. Yeah. They're going to learn more because the teacher is dynamic. You know, I'll tell you one last story and then I want to hear your feedback. I had one student who I had for just freshman year who came to my class a few times a week, left the school for personal reasons. I met him up, I met up with him three years later at his former classmates graduation. And he told me that that year he had been asked by his teacher to write about somebody who had inspired him. And he wrote about myself and I asked him why I said, I barely, you know, we, we weren't like closely connected or anything of that sort. I didn't have him for multiple periods. I didn't have a personal relationship, but he said to me, because in your class, you were always having fun. And I think that bringing so it back to leaders, for even leaving the, yeah. the educational space leaders, you can create passion by showing up with passion. And you can find passionate people. So I'm curious to know, staying, I guess, on it for just a little bit longer, since you are in the leadership space, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you got there. Um, what advice do you give or would you give to leaders who feel like people are clocking in, clocking out, not really excited about showing up every day? They'd love to raise the energy level around them, um, but they don't know how. 
Well, that's a great question. And first of all, I so agree with everything that you said and, you know, very similar experiences on, on my side. The My favorite saying is the famous Yeats quote, um, uh, Yeats quote, um, it's the uh, education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire. Mm. I just think, and we actually have that quote on the front page of, of um, most of our courses. And I think it's just such a important part that is so often forgotten, especially in our national obsession with standardized test scores, that it, it's not about the knowledge that the kids are gaining. It's about giving them the a, an inspiration to learn more. Uh, you know, much of what you're, much of what I learned in high school, I don't use anymore um, in my daily life. But what I am using is uh, knowing how to ask the right questions, knowing how to, you know, dig a level deeper. And you don't learn that if you're not, if you're not showing the kids your own passion, right? So I, I just am such a big believer of the the idea that you mentioned that it it's it 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 is not about you know knowledge transfer it is it is about invoking a uh, invoking interest and passion in someone and that's a very different skill set than you know being knowledgeable about something and I think um yeah I the 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 advice I would give to anyone that's in the education profession is that you know, don't focus so much on, I mean, it's so hard. It's so, it's easy for me to say, because we don't have to teach to a standard. Uh, we teach adults um, who are thinking individuals. So we can, we can use all sorts of ways to incorporate really, really interesting things into our uh, corporate classroom for adults. Uh, you know, our main, the, the uh, main product that we have are these leadership simulations and they're super engaging and fun environments where you practice being a leader uh, by actually being thrown into the deep end, right? And you become CEO of a company and you have to learn how to make decisions across all functional areas of the company, super fun and super engaging. But I will say, I, I, I don't envy the person in a public high school who can't really do much of that because, you know, they're being asked to deliver on these standardized tests that I think really have destroyed so much of um, the the potential in our kids. I really do believe that. Like, yes, standardized, some standardized testing is important, but what we've been doing um, as a nation to our kids in making everyone think that everyone has to be an astroscientist STEM person, right? Instead of really focusing on figuring out what people's intrinsic motivators are, what their passions are, and then kindling those and fostering those to make people happy adults that are productive and focused on the things that they love doing. Um, I, I, I can go on and on about some of the, the things yeah, so that let's, I, I think let's are actually, <laughs> Let's actually transition out of education back to, back to the workplace. And let's make a, let's make a transfer, if you will, to, to the leader. So, Originally, I'd asked you a question about passion. We can certainly dive more deeply into that. But maybe while we're already here, we can talk about how leaders can um, help create a learning environment as well, encouraging learning of new skills, of knowledge, 
um, developing curiosity and interest on, you know, the people around them. Because I think, you know, there are many indicators of, of workplace satisfaction. And oftentimes we think that it's driven mainly by salary. You know, salary is a factor, but it's not the factor most people think it is. Because a lot of people will take less money to work in a more engaged environment where they feel more valued, engaged, et cetera. So what advice would you give and maybe sort of working your simulations outward to the outcomes that you seek for participants who are taking these simulations? What are the outcomes that you you want them to be able to develop so that they can lead their teams better? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, you know, the the interesting thing that I find is that there are many leaders profess to this idea as like, you know, I, I want to make sure that everyone has, you know, brings their most creative self to work, right? Um, what I actually have found, but but then the problem is there are, of course, you know, the daily realities that, not, you know, most of the time we work on things as a team that aren't necessarily the things that, you know, if we were all by ourselves, we would want to work on, right? So reconciling the needs of the business with the needs of individual for creative self-expression is one of the hardest parts of a leader to, to reconcile, right? Because sometimes they overlap 100%. Most of the time, they overlap maybe, you know, 20, 30%. And so the the needle that leaders have to thread is to figure out how do I engage people in a way that gets them to do their very best for the company and also gets them to be their very best for themselves and it that's the hardest part i feel for any leader and uh i the the answer we actually we did write a book about called, called the 12 week mba and and in in that book one of the big chapters one of the most important chapters i feel is on um, understanding people's intrinsic motivators. Um, and it's interesting because you actually man, don't necessarily talk that much about it when you go through a 12 week MBA or when you go through a full two year MBA. Most of that, you, what you learn there are, you know, finance, accounting, marketing, you know, frameworks on supply chain management. But you don't talk as much about that part of leadership, which is, I think, the most, one of the most critical ones, which is, really understanding the people that you work with, whether they're, you know, mostly, you know, your subordinates, but also your peers and your boss and understanding what is, what are their intrinsic motivators, right? And when you, when you really do get an understanding of what those motivators are, you can start tailoring things in your work environment to those motivators, right? And sometimes, you know, those motivators are very surprising. You, you know, you you may think someone is motivated by money, but maybe they're just motivated by security. And if you realize that, you can find all sorts of ways in which you can tailor the work environment to those intrinsic motivators. And I do think that's like one of the hardest tasks and one of the most important tasks that a leader can, can do. Um, and, you know, what... I, I go back to my it it's it's in the middle and I'm I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, it's I'm a, I'm a, it's in the middle kind of guy and so you know the 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 idea that you can and should unfold all of your personal passions at work 100% of the time I think it's an it's not necessarily 
No, most people know that's not a realistic idea. The On the flip side, if you leave all of your passions at home, you're also not going to be happy. The, the important part, I feel as a leader, is to create avenues where people can express themselves, can, can be creative, can um, utilize their intrinsic curiosity. But I do think having constraints is actually really important. It's really interesting that the, you know, Google's 20% projects, a lot of them actually, you know, and Google basically told their, their everyone at Google can spend 20% of their time on interesting projects that they do on their own that have maybe nothing to do with their day job. Those projects actually haven't worked out as well as Google had hoped, right? And um, not that many great business ideas that came out of those projects. Um, what has worked more, and I think, you know, Apple has, has done a great job with that, is um, putting some constraints on that creativity and that curiosity, say, we are all moving in this direction together as a team, but then within those constraints, allowing for creativity. So a lot of times people think creativity and is wide open canvas when I have often found that to get people to do their very best job and ultimately to be most satisfied, putting the right constraints in allows for people to have a focused energy and have their intrinsic motivators and their passions be engaged. So how does a leader actually find out what his people or her people are passionate about? And then, you know, maybe a little bit of a harder question to answer because it's probably context specific. How does a leader, other than giving people space and maybe some permissions to get involved in projects that are not core to their day-to-day, how can leaders, in fact, allow people to tap in to those passions in a manner that's constructive for the company? Yeah. Uh, the answer to your first question is also a, a big chapter in our 12-week MBA book, and and uh, that is presence uh, and trust. So the two most important concepts that we believe that a leader needs, first of all, trust. Uh, everything is... Uh, Trust needs to underlie every relationship that you have as a leader. If you don't have trust, you're not going to have any type of meaningful, open conversations with the people that you are leading. So trust is the basis. And then the second thing is presence. And, you know, as leaders, we get caught up so many days, and I'm guilty of this too, in the day-to-day. And... We have a thousand things that we need to get done. We have a thousand to-do lists. And when we enter a meeting with people that we collaborate with, we got to get through those 12 items. And we often forget to be present. And the most amazing things can happen when you are present for the people that you work with. Um, and it gets harder as you get, as you get bigger, right? I've, I've got a pretty large team now underneath me and I, can't be present for all, all of them, right? So I have to be, uh, you know, selective in how much time I spend. But I just am always surprised by how much you learn when you're present, when you're really mm -hmm. present for the person. Um, there are, um, you know, and I can rattle off some of the intrinsic motivators that we believe are, are you know, there's uh, there's some great... Um, uh, thought leadership, Daniel Pink's drive, right? Lists, you know, autonomy and 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 some more um, 
I guess, surprising motivators, right? People think, oh, well, people are just motivated to make money. I said, that's not the case at all, right? Some people are motivated by one of the most interesting things I feel is like, uh, some people are motivated by possession. And some of that possession can be literally possession of tools. So you can give them a raise of two, $3,000. And they're like, thank you very much. That's great. But you give them the latest software tool that allows them to express their individual creativity and and you're get, gaining 10 times as much excitement motivation and and ultimately productivity and performance from that than you would have if you just given a raise for the same amount so i find that really interesting you know in terms of but but for other people it doesn't matter which tool, which tool they use right like you just give me tell tell me what to do and i'll do it right like just you know so it there are some big differences in what motivates people and if you're present if you understand if you ask a lot of good questions if you really get to know the person that you're working with on a personal level you'll find out a lot okay so you hit on something at the very very end of that that i was going to add in in case because i wasn't sure that i had heard it earlier um, just for everybody listening, I think presence is obviously very important, but it doesn't mean, I'm sure you didn't intend this, of just sort of being in their space and no, even leaning yeah. in. It, it does mean asking questions. It does mean demonstrating curiosity. So that's fantastic. Now, yeah. one of the things you talked about at the beginning of your response that I think a lot of people struggle to define. In fact, I actually uh, started with a, with a new client very recently and um, she's had some issues with her with her supervisors, um, not only the current one, but a couple of levels up. And there was some history with some others as well. And so we talked about trust and how trustworthy is she to those who are above her, not only in terms of some of the issues, let's say communication issues and certain other things like that, but also just as far as the relationship goes. And I'm curious to know, I do use a particular model framework in my own mind that I often share. What is your what is your way to quantify perhaps the most nebulous of all leadership concepts, which is trust? And how do I know it when I see it, so to speak? Like what are its elements? Well, that's a fantastic question. And and uh, I'm going to start invoking the book again, mainly because that's been the focus of my life for the last two years. Uh, but also because I do think one of the big things the, the 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 way that we actually have the way we're thinking about business in, in the 12 week MBA is that it's actually the the concept that a company is based on a whole network of trusting relationships. And when you think about business value, like what is what is the value of a business? Like why is Apple worth billions of dollars, right? Like it's been, you know, other people could just invent a new iPhone and 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 sell against them, right? What makes Apple so um worth so much, right? Why is why is the value of the company? So we actually unpack where that value is coming from. And one of the big uh un counterintuitive things is that value actually isn't derived from a our current revenue. It's not even derived from our current profits as a company. It's actually derived from the future promises that we make. Future promises that we make to our customers that we will be there for them. Future promises that we make to investors that we will grow the business. Future promises that we make to all employees that they will be paid, to suppliers that they will be paid. So this entire construct of a business and what value is derived from um, it is 
not based on today's numbers and margins. It's all based on what is going to happen in the future. And because the future is uncertain, trust has to be a critical element in every part of the equation of how a business operates and grows. And so we have this, you know, kind of we build our um, argument on why trust is at the heart of actual value creation for a business on this idea that alongside these big promises to shareholders on how much profits will be there next year, the year after, every, every relationship in the business, every team in the business is based on this trusting relationship, right? The manager trusting the person doing the work that the work gets done on time. The person doing the work, trusting that the manager has their best interest at heart. The you know, and it's so it, the trust kind of cascades through an organization, and it can be broken, right? And so, we are oftentimes as managers, not nearly, and as business leaders, not nearly thinking about think not 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 thinking about this concept of trust nearly enough as we should. When you think about, you know. Oftentimes we make promises that we may not be able to keep sometimes, you know, and so that can erode trust. And if we, if we, if you put this idea of trust at the heart of a business and roll it up through all the various departments, all the way to the, the statements that the CEO makes to shareholders in terms of when a new product will be released, you realize that this entire construct of a company is actually, you know, just a construct of net and a construct of trusting relationships that all roll up from you know throughout the entire organization. So um, there's a lot more to that concept, but that is at the heart of one of the things that we believe has been misunderstood. You know, when when business when when sometimes business leaders make decisions that erode trust with their shareholders and, and with, with their stakeholders, including you know, employees and customers. Yeah. And I think that what you just hit on, you know, I, I often reference the the Ken Blanchard ABCD model when it comes to trust. And so you hit on the B and the D, I think, a lot, the believable and the dependable. Right. In other words, my word is my word, and I will do what I say I will do. It's kind of funny because I can think of multiple examples, whether it's a bank account or furniture that I've purchased or certain other things or warranties, different companies, et cetera, that the company went out of business. And so here I am, I have a lifetime guarantee, I have a lifetime package on, you know, let's say furniture repair and they're no longer existing. So that didn't do, do me very good, you know? So there's no guarantees that anything will be there forever. On the other hand, you're there in the moment you're there as long as you will be there. You're going to give them your word. You're going to follow through as best as you possibly can. And then the A and the C are able, able and connected. So you have the ability to do the job and connected is an important piece. I think it's a theme of a lot of what we've discussed that underlying relationships is a sense of connection, right? I will run through a brick wall for people who I feel have my back, are supportive of me. I'm connected to and then there are other people who I'll do my best because they're paying me to do it, let's say, but I don't have that same degree of passion. It's almost more of a clock in, clock out type of a, of a relationship with them. And so you oftentimes transform, you know, 
even even something as transactional as a as a work agreement by the the approach that you take and the the amount that you invest in and and the busier you get and the more people you have the more direct reports or indirect reports you have it'll look different but people don't measure it necessarily in 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 amount in quantity they measure they measure it in quality so if the boss the big boss let's say is spending 5 10 focused minutes with me every so often but when they're there they're truly there and I'm the only source of their focus that's of greater value to people i think than even less you know much more time mm. but less of that personal touch yeah. So I'd love to go deeper on it. I know we can converse on it for a while, but we do have got to transition over as we make our way to, to the last segment, the next segment. The first, the last question, excuse me, that I have for this segment is tell us about the biggest mistake you've ever made and what you've learned from it, how it informs your practice today. Oh my God. I, I, I th That is probably the hardest question for me to answer because I've made so many mistakes. And I actually am very, I'm a reasonably open guy to, and, uh, to, and, and uh, often probably more vulnerable than I should be in, in, in life. I, I, there are, the biggest mistake is, is probably, is probably hard. I, I, I'm, I, I'm actually going to go with like, if I, if I had to like reflect back on my entire life, um, a, a, a big mistake that I made early on, I, I did actually follow my passion into this educational industry. So that was not the mistake, but I did not think through the business model that my first company was based on nearly as much as I should. And it's, and it's interesting and it is the cobbler shoe syndrome because we do teach business acumen. We do teach unit economics. We do teach the numbers. And I've been teaching it for 20 plus years now in the classroom. You know, I've done all sorts of, you know, kind of let, let's pull out a pen and do the calculations on what, you know, margins would look like if you were to do this, what, you know, how to increase our margin, how to increase our growth. So we teach it. I taught it. And then I've run my own business and I ran my first business with a lot, a lot of passion. Um, but for 15 years, I ran it with very, very low margin. And I always was trying to figure out how to make ends meet. And I will say that's pro that was probably a 15 year mistake where, and this goes back to the earlier point of do follow your passion, but but also make sure you understand the number. And it's always the passion, and then there's the numbers. Make sure you understand the numbers, um, because you can run against walls over and over again if you just purely follow your passion. So, mm -hmm. going back maybe to your very first question, I do still believe that it is absolutely essential that whatever you do as especially as an entrepreneur but as any kind of leader that you passionately believe in the things you do but for 15 years i had a business that had very low margin and i wasn't able i wasn't willing to look at it look in the mirror and ask some really tough questions of myself um and so you know 
I, I now with my second company have a very different business model, um, different gross margins, different way in which we are able to generate revenue. And I didn't realize the emotional and the uh, <laughs> psychological impact that like actual numbers, i.e. gross margins have on you. Cause I am a personally much happier person than I was nice. when I was with a low margin business. So that's probably the biggest yeah. life lesson It's 15 years okay. of my life. And I, I love a big my lesson. company too, but yeah. Yeah. It's a big lesson, had the big implications. And I think it's also shows the importance of having a coach or a mentor. They're not the same, but each serve, or serves a role. Somebody who maybe doesn't even share your passion and can mm -hmm. be that objective pair of eyes to counter the uh, the the passionate side because again you're looking at it and saying that's great and all but it's not it's not adding up and are you willing to step away are you willing to change things so really very valuable to unpack and and with that I'm going to transition uh, to a, a a short and sweet segment known as rapid fire where we get right into it with quick answers to all sorts of interesting questions. And the first one I've got for you is, if someone was visiting Germany, you'd insist that they visit blank. The Miniature Museum in Hamburg. Okay, I have to check it out. Your favorite non-business simulation. It could be at Universal Studios. Probably go with what I play with my kids right now, Settlers of Catan. Oh, that sounds like fun. The worst mispronunciation of your name. Bjorn. <laughs> that sounds pretty Texan. Speaking of Texas, the best part of living in Texas. The people. Okay. Shower morning or evening? Morning. On a scale of one to 10, how patient are you? You want the honest truth or the... This is the honest <laughs> truth right here. What What's what's patient, 10? Uh, very patient would be 10, yes. Probably a three. Okay. Um, kind of books that you read or listen to? Autobiographies. Nice. And finally, a productivity tip that helps you to get more done. Um, I can't explain it, but zero inbox has changed my life. Nice. Okay, so uh, tell us where we can find you, reach out to you, connect with all the great things you're up to, learn more about your work. Ability.com, that's ability spelled with an I-E at the end, .com is the company that I have been leading for the last eight years with an amazing executive team, amazing uh, folks. Um, we have a book coming out called, as I mentioned, the 12-week MBA. Um, you can uh, find more about that at 12weekmba.com. And you can reach out to me on the social handles that I don't have ready at this point, but I'm sure we'll you'll drop them in the show notes. Drop them about in it. the show notes. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So Bjorn, I'm not going to say Bjorn. Bjorn, uh, before we go, uh, one final life lesson, please, to wrap up our episode. Life lesson. If someone offers you to go somewhere, do something, always say yes. Fair enough. Okay, it's been a pleasure. Great getting to know you and everything that you're up to. Uh, keep doing good things. I think the world needs your uh, educational materials, your resources, your leadership tools. Um, so thank you for sharing all about that. And um, 
definitely looking forward to sharing the good word with uh, with my listeners. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful to speak with you. And uh, and yeah, want, hope to stay in touch. It's been a pleasure. Bye-bye now. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Your feedback gives the show more social proof and encourages more folks to listen.